Chapter 12 is our sermon text for this morning. Luke 12, beginning in verse 49 through verse 59. We come to God's word, not looking down upon it, but from underneath it, knowing that we need to receive its truth, that he has given it to us for our good in this life. Let us hear from God's holy word, Luke 12, verse 49. Our Lord said, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He said to the crowd, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, It's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, It's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled to him on the way, or he may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever. Amen. Our world is a divided world, and right at the center of that division, if you look closely and and perceive it, you will see Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. You will see what he claimed. You will see all of the things that he taught while he was on the earth. This division is something that you see. In in many examples, I was reminded of it uh, this week, as many in the world remembered and, and celebrated and mourned the loss of the late Stephen Hawking scientist, thinker, celebrity. He was a man who thought, like many, that science, the advance of science, will conquer all. It will remove our need to acknowledge or know God or seek the truth that he has given to us or that he might have for us. And so Hawking, in in a very clear way, is a representative of the kind of division that happens around Christ and the cross. That is taught for us here in this passage. And Jesus teaches us the kind of division that stems from his life, that stems from the claims that he made and what he taught and did while he was on the earth. From this passage, we'll consider three things together today. First, what causes this division that Jesus talks about? Secondly, how deep does this division go? And then lastly, what might we do about it? What might we do 
about it. First, what causes this division Jesus speaks of in our passage? Jesus speaks of fire and a baptism in parallel ways. They are what cause this division. But we need to understand what Jesus meant by them. What did he mean when he talked of a fire and baptism? He mentions fire first, but he says that it is yet unkindled. And when he speaks of the baptism, he says that he is distressed until it is completed. And so we know that if one of these two has begun, it is the baptism. So we'll consider that first and then the fire second. What does Jesus mean when he says he has a baptism to undergo? He's not speaking of his water baptism when John the Baptist baptized him. He's speaking of something else. If we consider the teaching of scripture, there are several events that are called baptisms that bear similar characteristics. A couple of examples for us to consider. First is the example of Noah. Noah's event with the flood is referred to in 1 Peter as a baptism. Noah and his family were saved through the trial and calamity of the flood, while the rest of the earth perished in the floodwaters. Secondly, Paul in 1 Corinthians calls Israel crossing the Red Sea a baptism. They are being chased down by Pharaoh and his army. God splits the Red Sea. They walk through on dry land, and Pharaoh and his army, they perish in the floodwaters. From these two examples, we see that baptism is an ordeal sign. It symbolizes going safely through an ordeal of judgment, passing through judgment waters, coming safely out on the other side. For Noah, that is the ark. For Israel, it is the dry land. With this in mind, we ask, what is the baptism that Jesus has to undergo? When he says, I have a baptism, I must undergo, what does he mean? He's talking about the mission that his father has given to him. The mission for which he has been sent to earth. To be the second Adam. To be the savior of the world. The one who would be a worthy sacrifice for sin. The source of our forgiveness. Not only the source of our forgiveness, but the ground of our righteousness. That he would be worthy to be sacrificed for sin, but that also, also that he would stand as a representative. And that God would look at all who believe in Christ and say that they can be accounted righteous because of the work of Jesus. Jesus says that this ordeal, this baptism, has already begun. The pinnacle of this, the apex of this, of course, is the cross. That's where Jesus' life is leading him. It's going to end there at the cross, but he says it's already under, it's, al- it's already started. It's already undergoing its process. Why does he say that he is distressed now? Our catechism reminds us of this very well in question and answer 37. It reminds us that it's not just at the cross for Jesus, but during his entire life on earth that he suffered. Why? Why did he suffer his entire life, not just at the cross? Because in his entire life, in his body and in his soul, he was bearing the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. The incarnation itself, Jesus leaving heaven's glory, his leaving the perfect fellowship that he had with his father from all eternity, his coming to earth to bear the wrath of God. That means that he will suffer from the moment he leaves heaven's glory until the moment he returns to the father's right hand in glory. And so he suffered his whole life. His temptation is an example of this. 
the, the agony that he often felt, the loneliness that he often felt on this earth, uh, his withdrawing to pray, to be in fellowship with his father, all of this reminds us that he was in anguish. And it's his way of saying in this passage today, he's wanting us to consider his distress, consider the distress of Jesus. The sufferings of Christ are in many ways before us at this time of the year. We're thinking about them and dwelling on them. And in order for the weight of those sufferings to hit us, we must remember that his whole life, leading up to the cross, his whole life, he was in anguish over what he had to suffer for us. Secondly, we must consider his resolve. So consider his distress, consider his resolve. Remember in chapter 9 of Luke, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. He says, I'm not going to turn to the right or to the left. I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to go all the way to the cross. And he refused uh, to be moved to the right or left from his mission. So consider his resolve to advance his father's glory, his resolve to save us from our sins. And then finally, consider his love. Consider his love. His love for us, for us which stands in the face of our rebellion and wandering. If you've ever had the experience of mistreating someone and then they respond to your mistreatment by treating you graciously and lovingly and doing no wrong to you, you know how awful that can sometimes make you feel? If we consider the love and the resolve, the distress of Jesus, and we let his love uh, come into our lives and our hearts and we consider that, shouldn't that be the main motivation that would keep us from sinning? If you think about it this way, that the, the sins that you will commit in the future, which inevitably we all will, right? We all will sin in the future, but the sins that you will commit in the future, they have already been paid for in the past at the cross of Christ. Shouldn't that, as you consider his love, his distress, his resolve, shouldn't that be a wonderful motivation uh, to keep us from sin and to keep us centered upon the glory of God in our lives. We remember this, don't we? That because of Christ, God looks at us and he is satisfied. His wrath is satisfied. He declares us righteous. But because God is satisfied with us in Christ, that doesn't mean that as we look at our own lives, we always need to be satisfied with ourselves. Rather, we pray to God that his will might be realized in us. What is, what is his will for our lives? First Thessalonians, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, your sanctification, that you would grow in your ability to, by the Spirit and by his grace, show forth uh, the image of God that has been remade in Christ. The baptism of Jesus, then, is his suffering and his incarnation all the way to the cross. What, then, is the fire that he will cast on the earth? Chapter 3 of Luke Remember, John the Baptist says that, uh, that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So this, in some sense, alludes to that passage back in chapter 3. If we consider all of Scripture and we, and we look at all of the references to fire, it overwhelmingly is usually a reference to judgment. Fire is a symbol of judgment. When God sends fire to the earth, he's doing so as a way of judging. For example, Hosea chapter 8, the Lord says this, Israel has forgotten his maker, but I will send fire upon their cities that will consume their fortresses. 
So fire is one of judgments, but judgment of fire does not just consume in condemnation. It does two things. It consumes in condemnation or it refines. It makes pure. Those are the two things that fire does. And this is what happens after Jesus' life. And he sends forth the apostles to go and to preach the gospel, to preach the message of the cross, right? The apostles go into the world and they say, if you believe in Jesus, you can be forgiven of your sin. And what does that do? That, in a sense, sets the world aflame with the division that goes forth from the cross. Those who believe in Christ and those who reject that message. And so, the fire that Jesus will cast on the earth is the judging and refining and dividing that goes forth from the cross. It sets the division that endures to the end. So the cross refines God's people. It refines God's people. For through the cross, Jesus purchased for us all of the benefits that we enjoy. He purchased for us forgiveness. He also purchased for us our ongoing process of purification. But also the cross stands as a symbol of judgment for those who reject the message of Christ. The cross, in a sense, becomes the the great dividing mark in all of human history. Jesus, that, that fundamental line in the sand. For it is the cross that shows us that there are not many ways to God. Right? There aren't many options. Just sort of choose your path, follow that path as best as you can, and God will sort of make it all work out in the end. If there were many ways to God, would the cross be necessary? If uh, God were able to bring many people to him through ways other than the cross, would he send his son to suffer in such agonizing ways? Of course not. Of course not. But this kind of a message causes division. So Jesus says, I've not come for peace, but division. So go around and take a straw poll on the street today and You can ask people what it is that they think about Jesus, what it is that they like about Jesus, what's their impression of him as a leader and a teacher. You might hear people say something like this, I like Jesus. He was such a great teacher, a unifying figure, taught about love and peace. He had such wisdom, he taught with such grace, and he taught, he he brought forth more peace to this world. Mahatma Gandhi, of course, famously said this. You've probably heard this quote before. He said, I like your Christ, but not your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. There's a partial truth there. It's uh, sadly in some ways true, right? That Christians do not accurately reflect the character of their Savior. But here Gandhi alludes to the wrong conception that Jesus has come to bring earthly peace, temporal peace to this earth. Jesus did teach love and peace. We've, we've actually seen from the Gospel of Luke that peace is a huge part of what uh, Jesus teaches. Remember, when the, the woman comes to Jesus and, and anoints his feet with the ointment and she's crying over him, coming to him in mercy, in a sense begging him for, uh, for forgiveness and repenting her sins to him, what does Jesus say to her? He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The woman who has had the bleeding problem for 12 years comes to Jesus, crawling to him, trying to get to him, grab the tassels of his robes. Jesus feels this power go out from him. He says to this woman, your faith has made you well, go in peace. Jesus sends his disciples out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And he says, if you're received into a house, 
go to that house and say, peace be upon this house. So how can we make uh, sense of Jesus having peace sort of at the center of all the things that he has done, but then he says that there is division that he has come to bring to the earth. Well, the first thing to consider is that in this statement, Jesus is attacking a certain kind of thinking that is in a lot of his followers. A lot of his followers thought that when the Messiah would come, he would come and restore the kingdom of Israel to earthly glory, to earthly an, an earthly sense of peace. What are the kinds of kingdoms uh, that can have peace? It's the kinds of kingdoms that don't have any enemies that stand as a threat. In Jesus' time, this would have been the kingdom of Rome that had achieved great relative peace either by defeating many of their enemies or by assimilating many of their enemies. We ask ourselves, did Jesus come to engage in this kind of conquering, in this kind of diplomacy? Well, of course not. No, he did not. So when Jesus says that he has come not to make peace on the earth, he's refuting the thinking that so many had in following him. This is the Messiah. He's going to... He's going to be an earthly conqueror. He's going to give us earthly peace. He's going to conquer Rome. He's going to take us to the glories of David's kingdom and then beyond that. If not this kind of a peace, then does Jesus offer any peace? Of course, of course. Consider what he says to the women. Consider that he uh, is declaring peace in all kinds of ways throughout his ministry. But Jesus offers a better peace. And we know We know that from the Gospel of Luke, don't we? He offers a better peace, a peace with God. He came to seek and to save the lost. He set his face to Jerusalem and refused to be turned to the right or the left. He is headed to the cross in order to accomplish our peace with God, in order to address the deepest need that we we have as human beings, our sin. And the point in what Jesus is saying is that if his work, and if his kingdom creates this heavenly and eternal peace, then there is no option but that it will create temporal division on the earth. To have some set right with God in this way, to have some granted eternal forgiveness and others not, it creates a tension and a division in the world in which we live. See, Jesus is teaching us about the way that his kingdom relates to this world in which it finds itself. You have this kingdom of God, kingdom constituted by Christ. He is the head, he's the representative. All members of that kingdom come from every corner of the globe, united, every tribe and tongue and nation united under Christ, granted eternal peace with God. How could it not be that there would be some tension uh, and some division as that kingdom relates to the rest of this world. How is it, though, that God commands his kingdom to live in light of this division? Do we bear the swords? Do we go out into battle, fighting because of the division that we have with those who are not part of God's kingdom? No. As it relates to one another, God calls us to be abundant in the way that we forgive one another. Let the fact that God has forgiven you motivate and teach you how you are to forgive those around you in the kingdom of Christ. We're called to be abundant in the way that we forgive one another. We are called to be generous beyond the world's ability to comprehend. Right? We've talked about that in chapter 12 of Luke. Have an eternal perspective, a heavenly mindedness 
towards all of your possessions. We are called to be selfless in looking out for each other's interests. And as it relates to those outside of the kingdom, we are not to bear the sword, right? We are to try to show forth that peace. The Apostle Paul says, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Be at peace with all people so far as it depends on you. See, the peace that we have with God flows from the cross and it shapes our lives. But that's not the end of the story because the preaching of the cross does not just make friends of God, it makes enemies of him as well. J.C. Ryle says that it is useless to expect universal peace and harmony from the preaching of the gospel. Why? Paul gives us the answer. For some, the message of Christ and salvation is a sweet aroma of life. For others, it is a stink of death. So we can't expect that Christ would be creating this new people from the fountain of his cross in the midst of this world, and there would be no division. Because of this, God's people can expect hard times, can't they? 1 Peter 4 The apostle says this, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The trials we face refine us, sanctify us. So if that's what the division is, that's what causes the division, the baptism and the fire, how deep do these divisions go? How deep can these divisions go? Well, very deep. Very deep. It can cut deep because this is a message that is offensive to many and it is a message that is exclusive. Two things that don't get you very far in today's world, being offensive and exclusive. It's offensive, the message of the cross, because when you call everyone to look to Christ and believe in order to be redeemed, what's assumed in that message? Sin, right? You need to be redeemed from your sin. So you're assuming that everyone has sin that needs to be forgiven them. Uh, More so than that message, what's going to get you a lot more traction today is not that you need to be redeemed, but that you need to discover how powerful you are inside and discover the redeeming power uh, within you. The answer is inside. The exclusiveness of the message is also a problem for people because in saying that Christ is the only way to God, yet you're disqualifying all of the other ways. Famous actor uh, said this in a quote. This is actually a quote from Jim Carrey. So this is the gospel according to Jim Carrey. You didn't think you were going to get that when you came to church today. He said this, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Christian. I'm whatever you want me to be. It all comes down to the same thing. Christians themselves are having a hard time staving off this thinking. There's an article recently in the Wall Street Journal and one person who identified as a Christian said this, and, and they have some understanding of the truth, right? They said, personally, I am trusting Christ as my means of gaining God's permanent favor and a place in heaven. But someone else could get to heaven based upon living an exemplary life. See, there's a, a piece of the truth there, but has that person really understood what the gospel is? No, no. See, the machine of the spirit of the age rolls on shaping our thinking, trying to tell us and convince us that individual freedom goes to the extent of being able to define for you, for you who God is and define what his demands are upon your life. But that's not freedom, is it? That's spiritual suicide. 
And Jesus says that these divisions can reach to affect even the deepest, the closest of our connections, our families. Some people read this and they think that what Jesus is saying here is that this is a primary import of his mission. That he has come to break up families. He has come to, 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 to sow seeds of disunity in families. And that he is against the families, the family. That, of course, is not true. We know that God's covenant blessings abide with families. We know that God says our children are holy in 1 Corinthians 7. And therefore, they're set apart from this world because of their place in the church. The apostle tells us to raise our children in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. But this does not mean that being a part of a Christian family means that we presume that everyone will ultimately be saved from their sin. We are saved by faith alone, and we need to profess and live out that faith. Sadly, there are families who experience this kind of fracture. Those who who walk away and say, Jesus is not for me. It's not for me. I'm going to leave and go in another direction. The more prevalent example, perhaps, is those who see the truth of the gospel come from outside of the church. And perhaps over the years, a couple of their family members also see the truth, uh, perhaps through their ministry. But most of their family remains united in thinking that that person is out of their mind. What have they seen in this uh, Jesus figure? And the point of all of this that Jesus is saying is, if he can bring division within families... There are no relationships in the entire world that are free from the potential of fracturing along the lines of Jesus. That's why he uses the example of families, because if it goes that deep, there's nothing that can potentially, um, or that would be completely immune from this kind of division. So, a word of comfort and a word of caution. The first, the word of comfort. The comfort is that we see God's graciousness in his covenant people. What a blessing it is to teach our children from the youngest time that the gospel is a promise for them, a promise for them that as they look to Christ and trust in him and believe in him, they can be saved from the earliest ages of their life. We can teach them that they are sinners who need to look to Jesus and that their mind can can be inundated with these truths from the youngest time of their life where they can talk And listen and learn. But do not let their place in God's people lead you to assume that there is no work left to be done. That is dangerous thinking not only for our kids and for our families, but for ourselves as well. The great blessing of being in a Christian family is that each day, each and every day, we can encourage one another to remain diligent in heeding God's word, to guard our lives. What a blessing it is to live under the same roof with those who profess the same Lord. And what is it that we're helping one another do? We're helping one another remember that there is no greater call upon our lives than continuously looking to and trusting in Christ. That we need to do that every day and guarding our lives in those ways. This is something I've been challenged with and reminded of recently and uh, I've realized, been praying to the Lord that, that he would help me in this because I've realized that I can very easily set up my children as an idol in my heart. That I can, can revel so much in my love for them and, and think that they need me to be a great dad that I, I bypass the call upon my life to point them to Christ. 
and the need that they have to look to Jesus and to look to him always and not to look to me. So what do we do about this division then? What might we do about all that Jesus teaches us? This is a, as we close, just consider this. Jesus calls us to interpret the times through Christ, through his coming. We must remember that the same heart that drove Jesus to withstand all of his distress, all of his anguish, the resolve and the love that he had to save sinners, that is the same heart that he has today, a heart that's willing to forgive sinners who come to him. For Jesus Christ is always the same. In his life, in his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, he shows us his heart for sinners yesterday, today, and forever. The example Jesus gives is someone who looks at the weather and can predict the future. In Israel, a cloud over the west, over the Mediterranean Sea, that meant rain was coming. Uh, A wind from the southeast, from the desert, meant that a heat wave uh, was coming. And Jesus is telling them that if you were to apply the same skill to his coming you would be able to conclude two things. First, that salvation is here. And secondly, since salvation is here, judgment cannot be far behind. So Jesus is saying, just as what what, what we read in Isaiah chapter 55 today, seek the Lord while he may be found. For what do you do when you know a storm is coming? You find shelter, right? You find shelter. What do you do When you know a heat wave is coming, you make the proper preparations so that you will not have to stay out in the heat in the coming days. So when salvation comes, Jesus asks, do you avail yourselves of it? Do you remind yourselves that the salvation of your soul is what is most important in this life? And if judgment day is coming, do you make yourself ready for it? Verses 57 through 59 illustrate this point for us. If you have an accuser and someone who has a case against you, and and the assumption here is clearly that you're guilty. Your your accuser has a case, evidence evidence against you. You know that you stand guilty. You're heading to the court. So what are you going to try to do? Are you going to try to settle with your accuser or no? Imagine that situation. What would you try to do? Of course, You try to settle with your accuser. So, realize then that the price has been paid for you by the one who had a baptism to undergo, a fiery trial to withstand. So many people think that that they're good enough, uh, they lead decent lives, and, and, and they say, well, at the end of it all, at the end of this life, if we do need to answer to God, I'm sure he'll be reasonable with me. I'm sure he'll be reasonable. I'm sure he'll look at my life and see that I tried to be a decent person. I tried to be fairly good. And I'm sure that God will be reasonable with me on that day. So they don't bother with questions of spirituality, eternity. They don't bother with the question of Christ, that that he came to accomplish salvation. That he came to pay for their sin. How foolish that is. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Jesus is the great divider because either you trust in his work or you do not. And that is the fundamental reality that defines all people from all corners of the globe, every tribe and tongue and nation. Since salvation has come in Christ, we are in the last days. And since we are in the last days, that means that judgment is near. But the judge was willing to suffer judgment. 
to be crucified for sins in his baptism by fire. This is our legal remedy. This is what gets us out of standing before the judge on our way to court. In Christ, your case can be settled. We can settle the case of our life through the cross now by trusting in Christ or in the next life by suffering God's wrath. If you know the times, if you can interpret the times, you will settle up now. You will come to the merciful God by repenting of your sins, by believing in Jesus, and by making a start and following him all of your days. This was his heart when he was on the earth, to seek and to save the lost. The resolve that he had to pay, to pay the price for sinners shows us of his heart today, for he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was in anguish until his trial was over. But he refused to move to the right or the left so that he might save us from our sins. That same Jesus Christ stands ready to receive wretched sinners, ready to give them freely an everlasting and an eternal salvation. So trust and look to him. And God, by his grace, will grant you forgiveness. What a glorious and matchless and wonderful Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel, for the promise of redemption. And Father, we know that we are called to urgency, to interpret the times, not only as we look upon ourselves, but as we look out upon the world. Give us courage to bear this message. Give us courage to speak a word at the right moment that you may be honored, that Christ may be glorified, and that his work might be proclaimed. Father, we pray that that would be what defines the ministry of us here as a congregation, proclaiming the good news that many may see and know. We pray that that might be the source of our encouragement, that that might shape our hope always. Father, we thank you that we can have confidence and assurance that as long as we look to Christ, even with a faith that is imperfect, with a faith that that wavers, with a faith that isn't always as solid as we would like it to be, that that imperfect faith can grasp a perfect Savior. And so we ask that you would give us grace to continue to look to him and trust in him, that you would be the refuge of our souls always, and that we would always find that comfort in your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So, and our